Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful that you do stand before us even now with your arms so wide open, inviting us to come to you with every burden, with every hurt, with every disappointment, with every broken piece of our life. God, you invite us to come. So Lord, we come right now and and just fall before your feet. Come to receive words of encouragement and hope. Come to receive healing. Come to receive a powerful new beginning that only God can be found in you. So Lord Jesus, we're so grateful to be here today. We just pray that you capture our hearts with your love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Mrs. Teaberry decided to clean the cage of her beloved pet bird parakeet, Chippy, one day. The problem was that she decided to experiment with a new way of cleaning the cage by using the vacuum cleaner. And so she removed the attachment from the end of the hose, put it in the cage, and just then the phone rang. And so Mrs. Teaberry turned to answer the phone, and she'd barely lit out a hello when suddenly Chippy was sucked up into the hose of the vacuum. Mrs. Teaberry gasped, dropped the phone, turned off the vacuum, ran and opened the bag and rummaged through, and sure enough, there was Chippy, quite stunned but still alive. <clears throat> Well, being that Chippy was very, very dusty, she rushed Chippy to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, put him under the faucet, not realizing she had turned on the hot water, scalding poor Chippy with volcanic water. Realizing what she'd done, she quickly turned off the hot, turned on the cold water instantly, rushing Chippy to the place of Antarctic freezing cold water. Then noticing that poor Chippy was sopping wet and shivering, she did what any kind, loving bird owner would do. She grabbed the hairdryer and blasted Chippy with a big blast of hot air. So the neighbor came by a few days later to see how the bird was doing. Well, said Mrs. Teaberry, poor Chippy, he doesn't sing much anymore. He just sort of sits there and stares off into space. And we can kind of understand why poor Chippy didn't chirp because he had been so harshly tweeted. <laughs> now, <laughs> now some of yeah, don't boo. <laughs> some of you today may feel just a bit like Chippy, right? A little sucked up, washed out, and blown over. And sometimes life can be like a big vacuum cleaner, can't it? I mean, sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we're searching, we're desperate for hope, and we're hurting. And pain and hurt, they're not really a laughing matter. Well, unless you're watching America's Funniest Home Videos, but that's a whole different thing. Seriously, there was a seven-year period of time in the life of my family when I honestly wondered how in the world we were going to get through it. It started very, from the beginning when my mom uh, got a diagnosis with stage 4 lymphoma cancer. This came right on the heels of their divorce. And I remember sitting alone with my mom in the waiting room and watching her getting pumped full of chemotherapy. 
And some of you know exactly what that feels like. Short time after that, we got a phone call from Terry's aunt, woke us up in the morning to tell Terry that her mother had been hit in her car by a semi-truck, and it just didn't look good. Then not long after that, Terry's dad was diagnosed with lung cancer. And all this happened during a season of time when Terry and I were struggling through many years of infertility, which was so frustrating and so disappointing. And when we finally got pregnant, we were so excited. And at the celebration lunch that my mom took us to, Terry started bleeding, and we lost that baby to miscarriage. But a few years later, we finally were able to get pregnant. And again, we were so excited. But from six months to 12 months, the baby, our little one, she wasn't growing. And the doctor told us that they thought it might be cystic fibrosis. Well, fortunately, we recovered from that and the baby began to grow. But then we went through four more years of infertility before we could have another baby. And again, we went to the ultrasound. We were so excited to see this new baby and find out what it was going to be like. And then the tech got very quiet, and she said, you know, I'm a little concerned because there are several cysts on the baby's brain. And then we weathered through that storm, and then a year later, uh, I was called into the office of my work, and they told me that I was laid off. And then our appliances started to fall apart, and our car started to break down, and we went through months of unemployment. And then I finally landed a new job, and we thought maybe we'd get a little bit of a breath of fresh air, right? And then one morning, it was the weirdest thing, we hear a loudspeaker, there's a helicopter over our house hovering, telling us that we're under evacuation orders because the levee behind our house had breached, and at any moment, our house could be consumed by flood water. And you thought Chippy was a little traumatized. (laughs) Some of you are in a season like that. A long season where it's wave after wave after wave and you've just been sucked into the vacuum cleaner. You don't know how much longer you can hold on. You know, it may be a really devastating illness. And you know what the future looks like. It could be a severely broken relationship where you've lost hope. Financial ruin, a haunting past, an addiction or some type of life circumstance that leaves you wondering what's going to happen. Helpless hopeless. And I really think that it's safe to say that nearly all of us, just as Dave mentioned, in some way, shape, or form have areas of our life where there's pain and there's hurt. And sometimes we just feel helpless. You know, it's been said that the only person who has all their troubles behind them is the school bus driver. (laughs) But the good news is that Jesus Christ He is our living hope. And Jesus brings hope even into the midst of our pain, our discouragement, and our feelings of hopelessness. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So I encourage you, in your program, there are message notes, and go ahead and pull those out. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to look at John chapter 5 and look at a very powerful story of how Jesus encounters a man who'd been sick for a very long time. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. The main verses will be up here on the screens. And I want to encourage you, if you don't own a Bible, you can grab one from the lobby on your way out today. We'd love to give that to you as a gift. So as we start, I want to just give a little bit of the background of what's going on here. Jesus has been ministering in the area of Galilee. That's where he called most of his disciples. 
And if you just remember, you know, the beginning of the story, Jesus is having a lot of success in ministry. You know, he's helping to deliver people from pain and illness, from desperation. He's, crowds are starting to form. Hills are filled with people wanting to know what he's doing. And in, where we see us now is that he's, there's a festival coming, a, one of the holy days, which takes place in Jerusalem where the temple is and where the chief, you know, leaders of, the, of their faith is. And so he's traveling into Jerusalem. And so we go to John chapter 5, verses 1 to 3 and 5 and 6. And it says this. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the sheep gate, was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, they were laying on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him, and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? So we see Jesus entering through the sheep gate, which is called sheep gate because this is the gate wall around the city, the gate people would come in where they bring in their sacrifices for worship. And inside this gate was a pool, an area, uh, it's actually a mikvah, which I mentioned in my um, message earlier, a cleansing pool. At this particular one, there were rumors actually where the people believed that an angel would come and stir the water, and the first person to enter into the water when it was stirred would be healed of their illness. And so as you can imagine, many people would come seeking healing. Matter of fact, there's a picture here of the Pool of Bethesda. Now, this was discovered in the 19th century underneath a Byzantine church in Jerusalem, and it's exactly the way John describes it. You can visit it today. So if you can picture this scene... Crowds of hundreds of people of sick, blind, lame, desperate people all around this pool, hoping, waiting. And one of these is a man who'd been sick for 38 years. You got to think about the life expectancy of people at that time. Most of his entire life, paralyzed, unable to help himself, frustrated, despondent, maybe even bitter. And see, Jesus, as he enters the city, He doesn't go to hang out with the religious leaders. You don't find him mingling with all the festival goers. Where Jesus, his heart is drawn directly to the broken, the hurting, and the desperate. And it's here that Jesus unleashes hope into this man's life. And how does he do it? Well, first, Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. He took notice. And his heart was moved with deep compassion and care for this man you know in my desperate times i remember saying to god god don't you see what's going on don't you see what's happening don't you care but the encouraging thing in all of this is we know that jesus does see jesus sees what's happening his heart is moved with compassion and he does know and does care second thing is that Jesus knew his situation. Jesus knew his situation. Passage tells us that he knew the man had been sick for a long time. You see, when Jesus sees us, he also knows us. He knows what we're going through. He knows why we're going through it. And he knows how to help us get through it. He knows. Jesus knew more about what was going on with this man than the man did himself. 
when he wanted him to be free. He saw a whole new world of possibilities for this man. And he was there to unleash hope into his life. And he did it, interesting enough, actually in Jesus' fashion, with a question. Jesus 3 asked him a question. He asked him, would you like to get well? (laughs) Now that seems like a really absurd thing to ask a man who's been sick for 38 years. But it's fascinating that this question was the catalyst that actually would transform this man's life. You see, what the question did is it helped unfold and expose a barrier that was in this man's life that prevented God from being able to work in a powerful way in him. And what was that barrier? The barrier was this. It was the man's solution to his problem. It was his solution to his problem. See, the paralyzed man was convinced that if he would just get in the pool, that he would be healed. You see, by answering Jesus' question, in his response, he revealed what he had placed his hope and trust in. We see it here in John 5, 7. The man said, I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. So the problem that we have with hoping in something other than Jesus is that we're always going to be disappointed and frustrated, right? And it's common when we're hurting and when we're broken and when we're desperate to look at the problem and focus on maybe solutions rather than focusing on the hope that overcomes all of those things. The question that Jesus asks here is important for all of us to kind of think about and consider, isn't it? Do you want to get well? You see, we may not realize it, but there are times when we're stuck because although we say we want to get well, right? Maybe there are really good reasons why we don't. And what are some of those reasons? Well, one, I'm comfortable with it. I remember um, I had a friend that spent some time in our local jail. And one of the observations that he made that was so fascinating to him is he would meet a lot of these young guys in jail. And they would complain about how horrible it was. And they'd finally get out, you know? And then what was fascinating to him is it wouldn't be long before they'd be right back in there again. Because that's where their friends were. It was familiar. It's where their needs were met. And so maybe we've become really accustomed to hanging around life around the pool of misery. Or maybe I'm identified by it. I'm identified by it. Sometimes our very identity is tied to our pain and brokenness. We've made it a part of it. It's so much a part of us that we just don't know who we'd be without it. And we start to own it, and it becomes part of us. It's too scary to let it go because we don't know who we'd be without it. Or maybe we're just despondent by it. Our hurt, pain, brokenness, addiction, whatever it is, it's weighed us down so much, and we've given it so much power over us that we're chained to it. Or maybe I'm rewarded by it. (laughs) Maybe it meets such a deep need in me and it feeds and stimulates me in such a way that I don't want to let it go. Yeah, it's negative, but I still get something from it. See, the turning point 
for this paralyzed man is that he was willing to admit to Jesus that his plan wasn't working. His plan wasn't working. He was helpless to change it. And they needed help. It was a place of humility and a place of surrender. And that is the place where faith is born. What I'm doing is not working. I can't change this situation. I need help. I don't know what to do. Please help me. That was my story of salvation. That's how I came to faith. And often it's when we're down to nothing that God is up to something, right? So how does God change us when we're helpless to change? How does he make it happen? Well, one of the things that's both really disturbing but also very encouraging to me is that God knows the right time and the right place and the right circumstances for change in our life. And when that time comes... God is completely powerful and capable and able to powerfully transform us. So John 5, 8 says this. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. (laughs) You know, Jesus, he gives some very specific instructions here. To this man that had been sick for 38 years, he tells him, stand up. And he does similar things to us today. You see, he says, stand up. He asks us to do what we think we can't do. The impossible. I mean, think about it. Has God ever done this to you in your life where you're convinced you can't do something? You know, I just can't talk to that person. (laughs) I can't face this impossible situation. I cannot forgive them. And God says, That's where we start, the impossible. The man wanted to get in the pool, and Jesus said, I have another plan, and it involves a step of faith. You see, the reason that God asks us to face the impossible, because the only way that we can get through and do the impossible is to rely on him. The Bible's full of examples of this if you think about it, right? I mean, he comes to Moses and he says, I want you to walk through and part the sea. (laughs) He comes to Abraham and Sarah who are old and he says, I want you to have a baby. He comes to Esther and he says, I want you to face the king and risk your life. He comes to Mary and he says, you are going to have the child of God. Joshua, David, Daniel, they all faced the impossible. And Jesus says to this paralyzed man, stand up. And Jesus then said, pick up your mat, which he's telling us to leave idolatry. Jesus is sending the message that, you know, we're not camping out here anymore. (laughs) We're moving on. We're not looking back. We're moving forward. We're leaving this crutch. Here's life around the pool, okay? This is what the people would do. They arrive really early in the morning. They try to get there as soon as they could because they wanted a great spot right at the edge of the pool so they'd be ready to jump in there as soon as the waters were stirred. So as you can imagine, <clears throat> as he had a mat there, sort of reserved his place. And to remove his mat means that someone would move right in there and take it over. You know, it's kind of like when you go to Six Flags, you know, and you've been waiting in line forever and ever and ever. I mean, you really have to go to the bathroom. 
But you know if you leave the line, you will lose your place. And so you'd rather struggle there in discomfort and maybe even wet yourself rather than leave and lose your spot in line. You know, whenever we have places of discomfort or hurt or weakness in our lives, it's easy to go back to those again, isn't it? You know, maybe it's a sinful relationship or a habit or a poor way of dealing with things, something that has control in our life. We finally get victory and we're drawn back like gravity to that because, again, we tend to drift. And these become idols in our life, things that we've relied on in place of God. And Jesus says, pick it up. We're moving on. We're not staying here anymore. And then he says, walk. Jesus expects us to walk in new life. He wants us to move forward. He doesn't just give us the power to give up. He gives us the power to move forward, the power to walk. Faith comes from moving forward. Faith is trusting God and doing what he tells us to do. And that's what the man did. He started walking. John 5, 9 to 13 says this. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat. He began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. <laughs> so we see very, two very, very different responses, right, to what happened here. First, the man, you know, he's got his man, he's just walking. I mean, he even forgets to, to check in and ask Jesus what his name is. He's just walking in joy. And all of a sudden, you have these religious leaders, these Pharisees that come up to him, and they have a totally different reaction. They say, hey, you're breaking the Sabbath. And when he tells them he was healed, they don't even hear that. Matter of fact, they're more concerned about trying to find the other guy who healed him because he broke the Sabbath too. I mean, talk about missing the whole point. Now, what happens next is really interesting. You see, Jesus, he seeks out that man again. He wants to find him because he has an important message for him. And where he finds him, I think, is really encouraging because he finds him in the temple which indicates that the man went directly to the temple after he was healed to worship God, to praise him, and to give thanks, maybe even give an offering. And so Jesus comes and he says to the man, it's important for all of us to be considered because it helps us understand what being well really means to God. What is being well? What does that look like to God? The man had been physically ill for so long horrendously burdened. It was easy for him to view as his greatest need for healing as a physical healing. But Jesus had something else he wanted him to focus on. So John 5, 14 to 18 says this. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he told him, now you are well. So stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jewish leaders began to harass Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, therefore making himself equal with God. Jesus never intended 
to just heal this man physically and leave him there with a healed body. He knew this man needed more. He didn't want him to continue in a life of sin. He healed him so that he could live a new life. He let him know that he needed much more than physical healing. He needed spiritual healing. And we don't know what the area of sin was that this man seemed to be struggling with, a serious area of sin. But although his physical illness was gone, you see that his soul was still very sick. And didn't Jesus say, what does it gain a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? The soul of the matter is the matter of our soul. And the reality is, there may have been, out of all of the people, desperately ill people around that pool, many of them probably were much better off than the Pharisees who walked around them and judged them. You see, sometimes, sometimes God can allow pain in one area of our life so that he can heal another area of our life. In fact, God says that we can rejoice in pain and suffering because of how it brings healing to our character and gives us greater hope in our salvation. Paul says this in Romans 5, 3 to 4. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Some of the most wonderful people that I've ever met when I've encountered people in life are those who have been refined through pressure like a diamond. I mean, these people are so comforting, so patient, so non-judgmental. They're so beautiful in every way, and they encourage others because they understand their pain. They deeply rely on Jesus, and in that way, they become just like him. The Apostle Paul wrote about his own journey in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. He said this, So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We get so impatient with our pain. I know I do. I want it to be gone now. But God's timing and his purposes are really just perfect. As illustrated in this story, there's a man who notices he was along a walk in the woods that there was a cocoon of an emperor moth. And he decided he wanted to sit and watch the miracle of this moth emerging from the cocoon. So from a very small opening in the cocoon... This moth struggled for hours to try to force its body through the hole. It struggled and moved and wiggled and struggled and struggled. And after a very long time, the man watched as the cocoon just went still. And it seemed like that poor moth was just stuck, unable to go any further. And so out of incredible kindness, the man took out a pocket knife. 
and he opened the cocoon so the butterfly could come, I'm sorry, the, the moth could come out. But as it came out, the poor moth, its wings were shriveled and its body was swollen. And the man continued to watch for a while, hoping that those wings would expand and the body would stabilize. But they never did. In fact, the moth was never able to fly because the man didn't understand that the restricting cocoon and the struggle required for the moth to force its way out of that timing opening were the ways that God had designed for the fluid in the moth's body to be pushed out into the wings to enable it to be ready to fly after persevering through the struggle. And it was the struggle that was the very thing that would strengthen this moth and prepare it for life. And you see, there really isn't any pointless pain in the life of a child of God. And if you allow him to, God will use your pain, he'll use your hurt, he'll use your disappointment, he'll use your brokenness to help form you to be like him. And just like the cocoon, I mean, isn't it true that we just don't understand the process? But if we trust God, something beautiful will emerge. And ultimately, in the end, one way or another, God will completely transform us and make us new. The very last thing I want to focus on is Jesus himself. Because, see, Jesus knew that healing this man on the Sabbath would just intensify the heat of the religious rulers to want to kill him. And yet Jesus saw this man in his desperate condition and he knew the cost and he stepped into that space to help him. It says a lot about our Savior that we have this incredible hope that through all things his love overcomes all of it. Romans 8, 35 to 39 is a great reminder of this. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, are persecuted or hungry or destitute, in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ, who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Jesus saw the man. And Jesus sees us. Jesus knew the man, and Jesus knows us. And Jesus asks the man a question that revealed his greatest need and unleashed hope in his life. And so my question to you is, what question is Jesus asking you? I encourage you to spend some time with Jesus this next week and ask him that. Because you never know what he might do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when we're hurting, helpless, desperate, that you do, you see us, you see us now.
and you know and you care and you surround us with our with your incredible love god we just come to you and we admit that everything we've tried and everything we've struggled with god just hasn't worked and we just need your help so we fall into your arms and we trust you even with the hard things god we know we struggle but we know and we trust you and it's in your capable hands god that we know that we are loved and safe and cared for and you will make us new thank you for that lord in jesus name amen